Welcome to Shanghai Zhan, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We'll also be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts, and you can learn more about Shanghai John on our website, johnstation.com. Z H A N station.com. Coming to you directly from the city of Shanghai, I'm Bryce Suetwam, and I'm Ali Kazmi. And this is our 27th episode, Ali, and we'd like to thank all of you for your continued support. And if you like the show, share with your friends, or better yet. Give us one of those important five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You know, making this podcast is pure love, no profit. We don't make any money out of this, and we'd really appreciate your help. And if you'd like to help us, you can make a donation at Patreon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Shanghai Zan. And we'd like to remind everyone that this episode is sponsored by our good friends at Campaign Asia. So today, Ali, we are going to discuss the evolution of international education. Technology has provided an enormous flexibility in the ways educators can engage with students, and this trend has been greatly accelerated by the pandemic, both in China and elsewhere. Despite this, Chinese students still choose to go abroad, and close to half of them, 317,000 in 2021, chose the U.S., making them 35% of the total students in the U.S., the largest international group. So, why can't China also be an excellent place to study? Yes, the pandemic has slowed students coming to China considerably. But in a typical year, you got about 500,000 foreign students that come to China. And why should you even study in China? Well, I can say from my own experience, it's not just about the language, but also our listeners would appreciate. It's also about experiencing a completely different marketing ecosystem. It's not just a different ecosystem; it's one that's actually leading the world. To talk about this, we are extremely honored to have Jeffrey Lehman. Who is an American scholar, lawyer, and vice chancellor of New York University Shanghai, known as an advocate for the role of universities in globalization? He previously served as chancellor and founding dean of the Beijing University School of Transnational Law in Shenzhen. He was also the president of Cornell University and the dean of the University of Michigan Law School. Jeff was also chair of the board of Amcham Shanghai for two years. Jeffrey, welcome to Shanghai Zan. Thank you, Bryce, and thank you, Ali, for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today.、Uh, just starting off, I'd just be interested to know. I know that the NYU Shanghai represents your second position in China, as I mentioned in the introduction, after you moved from Shanghai to Shenzhen. Why are you staying around in, Shang- in China for these jobs? Well,、uh, Bryce, I, I first came to China. Fourteen、uh, years ago,、uh, as a favor to a friend of mine,、uh, Xu Jihong、uh, was then the president of Peking University.、Uh, he wanted to create an international-style law school on Peking University's experimental campus in Shenzhen,、uh, and he asked me for help. So I agreed to come over for a year、uh, to help get things going. And fourteen years later, I'm still here. And the reason is that I have just found it enormously gratifying、uh, to develop these two schools,、uh, each an experiment, 
each committed to nurturing a spirit of cross-border partnership in the students. And in each case, uh, I've had the privilege of working with partners uh, who are just completely committed to the same vision and values that I believe in. And could you explain to our listeners a bit about NYU Shanghai, which is essentially a joint venture between the East China Normal University and New York University? Tell us about the size and composite of the student body. What programs are offered? Sure. So NYU Shanghai is a comprehensive research university that's now entering its 10th year of teaching. We have about 2,000 undergraduate students and about 500 master's and PhD students. We cover most disciplines, the natural sciences, the humanities, social sciences, business, and engineering, along with some innovative interdisciplinary areas like interactive media arts. So our undergraduate program uh, in many ways looks like the undergraduate program at a typical American university. Um, but it has two what I think of as distinctive features. So first off, we are totally committed to ensuring that all our graduates are prepared to be effective members of multinational, multicultural teams. Half our students are from China and half are from the rest of the world, uh, 70 different countries. So we are able to assign every entering freshman a roommate from another country. Um, all our classes are taught in English, but all our non-Chinese students have to become proficient in Chinese if they want to graduate. Uh, our students spend the first two years studying in Shanghai. Then uh, there are two semesters of junior year. They study at NYU campuses in New York and other major cities around the world. Uh, and then they come back to Shanghai for senior year. The second distinctive feature of NYU Shanghai, I, I think, is our commitment to nurturing our students' capacities for creativity and innovation. From the very first day, uh, we've had a program on creativity and innovation, and that has now grown to the point where we allow students to major in any subject while also minoring in creativity and innovation. So that that's, that's kind of an overview. Um, I would say that as a person who believes optimistically that despite all the recent political issues between the U.S. and China, that we ultimately live in this global world where there can be a peaceful coexistence between the two superpowers. And I really see NYU as being a real leader in that, in terms of bringing the, the two parts together. And I think that education is clearly one of the key aspects, key things that, that we as Americans can really bring to China. I would say that in, in my long period of time I've been in China, I think one of the aspects that I haven't seen an enormous a lot of innovation has been in the education sector. But more importantly, I see the relationship being greatly enhanced by uh, NYU's presence in, in Shanghai. There's some excellent universities. I'm always surprised. I was an adjunct instructor there for, for a bit of time. And people would equally compare it to esteemed institutions like Fudan. I know that you will talk a little bit about the new campus that's building up, but NYU is essentially an, is an office building in Pudong. 
Uh, it's really, that's basically what it is. The school itself as a brand seems much bigger than that. How, how do you account for the success of the brand? You know, NYU started out in 1831 as, as the University of New York, and it was uh, designed to be in and of New York City. And then in the 20th century, it uh, expanded its self-concept uh, to be a national university, to be a university that really served the whole country. And then late in the 20th century, in the beginning of the 21st century, it reconceptualized itself again. It decided that it really needed to be uh, a, a university for the world. And it, it redesigned itself as a global network. So instead of just uh, having one main campus in New York with uh, tentacles reaching out to other countries, which some universities do, NYU decided that they would have more than one degree-granting campus. People could come to NYU, to the system, through New York, which of course most people do, uh, or through Abu Dhabi. And then the third degree-granting campus uh, was uh, NYU Shanghai. And so the students can come in through any of these doors and circulate through the system and then go back to the door that they came in from. And the concept was that we are living in an era where the ability to cross borders and to inhabit the world's great cities is critical. It really is a special opportunity that people have. And so it's no accident that in China, we're in Shanghai. Uh, Shanghai is the counterpart city to New York. Abu Dhabi is, uh, for the Gulf region, the counterpart city uh, for New York. And then NYU has smaller uh, study away sites in London and Paris and Madrid and Prague and Tel Aviv and Buenos Aires and Sydney, uh, 11 other uh, comparable cities uh, all around the world. And John Sexton, I think, who was the president of NYU at the time, uh, used to say, and I, I think he had a, a compelling argument, he said, you know, uh, NYU will never be uh, seen as the best university in America, but it could well be seen as the best university in the world. I think it is uh, that paradox that derives from NYU's new self-understanding that has created so much buzz and created so much interest uh, for people all around the world, including, including in China. And I think, you know, I, I certainly agree with you. Fudan is a splendid university, and it has wonderful faculty and amazing students, but it doesn't offer the same kind of cosmopolitan preparation that we offer. And I think that's part of why we've been able to uh, attract such amazing students uh, and faculty here. The current NYU Shanghai campus, as I mentioned, is on Century Avenue in Pudong, but you're planning to move to a bigger facility starting next year in Qiantan, which is just north of Luzatsui. Besides size, what else is special about the new campus that you can share with our listeners? Our new campus was designed by the internationally renowned architectural firm Cone Peterson Fox, that has done a lot of great university buildings all around the world and has done a lot of work in, in China, uh, in Shanghai, in, in Qiantan itself. And they worked very closely with us 
to design a campus that would fit our identity, our, our special needs. So on the ground, the campus is uh, four buildings arranged in a pinwheel. Then when you get up to the third floor, they are cantilevered so that it effectively becomes one much larger building. And the effect of that is uh, to create four courtyards uh, coming in, one from the north, one from the south, one from the east, one from the west. That sort of symbolizes our ambition to attract students and faculty from the four corners of the earth and to bring them in through arches, uh, through archways that are, are characteristic of both Chinese architecture and Western architecture uh, into this, this place of study and contemplation and, and learning. And the design of the, of the buildings uh, enables us to operate as a really interdisciplinary uh, community uh, where there are not silos that separate disciplines, but rather people think about issues and problems uh, using all the tools that the different disciplines offer them. And I know that you've mentioned both in terms of from an architectural perspective, in terms of four corners and the whole role of NYU's advocacy on globalization. Do you think there's a difference between globalization of education and, and just simply studying abroad, or is one a subset of the other, or is there a big difference? Well, you know, study abroad, I have to say, is often a life-changing experience for the student who does it. Uh, it certainly was for me. Uh, I got to spend my junior year in France almost 50 years ago, and it changed who I am. I think the key to a successful study abroad experience is to make sure that the student is as much as possible immersed in the local culture and the local language. Uh, if you're isolated in a kind of bubble overseas, uh, hanging out with people who are just like you, the experience won't have the same kind of transformative impact. When you talk about uh, globalization of higher education, or you talk about transnational higher education, which we sometimes do, I think what you're talking about is uh, not at the level of the individual student, but at the level of the university as a whole, at the level of the institution. What you're saying effectively is that this kind of transformative experience shouldn't just be an option for a handful of students. Uh, and I think universities today should be structured to enable all their, their students to have this kind of experience. And, you know, we at NYU Shanghai require it. We require all our students to, to study in different countries. But even if a university doesn't require it the way we, we do, they should at a minimum strongly encourage it. For almost a thousand years, going back uh, to the University of Bologna, universities have thought of themselves as places that bring people together from different lands so that they can work together uh, to understand the world. Uh, universities are, you know, and I'm obviously biased because I've spent my career in, in universities, but they're a very special human institution. And I, I, I honestly think that cosmopolitanism is an essential part of, of the DNA of a university. So the other thing I was going to ask you was you mentioned that there's a 50-50 split between 
the number of students at the school. Uh, 51% from China, uh, 49% foreign students from elsewhere. With the new campus, do you expect the number of students to increase? Do you expect that there'll be a larger group or is it still be restricted to, uh, I believe, 1,600 students now at NYU Shanghai? So actually we're up to 2,000 undergraduates now and about 500 graduate students. And the design of the undergraduate experience, the 50-50 split is absolutely essential. That we will, we will never depart from. And we were designed uh, really to accommodate about 2,000 undergraduates. We don't really expect that population to grow. What we do expect with the new campus is that our graduate programs uh, will continue to grow uh, quite substantially over the next uh, decade. I would not be surprised, uh, you know, we're around 500 graduate students right now. I wouldn't be surprised if, if we have 1,000 graduate students 10 years from now. Those programs have been growing. They're designed very carefully in partnership with NYU in New York. And so we, we need to make sure that we don't dilute the quality of the programs. So we're, we're somewhat cautious but uh, I, I do think uh, graduate students add a lot to any university. We have about 50 PhD students right now. PhD students are, are just a tremendous addition to any university uh, community. They really add new perspectives, new ideas. They are this uh, wonderful combination of student and teacher at the same time. We expect our PhD program will continue to grow, but also our master's programs as well, for which there's increasing demand, I must say. And I think I mentioned this, Jeff, in the early part of our conversation. You know, with all the recent tensions in the U.S. and China, I think that we uh, and, and listeners to the podcast are always uh, hopelessly optimistic about the future, uh, uh, but... I mean, certainly nowadays, there's less optimism. Where do you see the future of globalization and education vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. and China? And, and what important role do you think that NYU Shanghai plays in that? Well, these are certainly challenging times for the bilateral relationship between the American and Chinese governments. And I'm sorry to say that uh, the, the struggles have led to rising antipathy and distrust among ordinary people in both countries. Um, I think that at times like these, it's, it's more important than ever to have ways for people in the two countries to interact with each other, to get to know each other, uh, not just through media, uh, to appreciate how much we have in common and, and truthfully how similar we are. I think business partnerships are actually one source of connection that can help to push back uh, against nationalist stereotypes. And in good times, the business partnerships can actually be much more numerous than student-level, student-to-student uh, connections. But today, as the the business side wobbles a little bit. I think the the student-to-student -student connections become even more important. And I think, truthfully, even in good times, the student-to-student -student relationships are the best. They come at this uh, amazing moment in people's lives, you know, this period between 18 and 22 when you are separating from your parents, you're defining who you are, you're figuring out who you are. 
people are very open. People are very impressionable. And so the university level, universities as bridges between different nations uh, have, I think, a special responsibility uh, at times like these. Jeff, so educational opportunities can come now from uh, pretty much everywhere uh, because there's such a huge demand in China for highly trained employees. Um, and Chinese employees, by and large, will consistently support training programs, uh, even over pay raises. Do you see the universities getting into short-term online training programs as well? Well, some universities definitely will. I think some areas of study that are more focused on absorption of knowledge uh, rather than developing skills uh, or other qualities, those programs do really lend themselves to online approaches, including uh, what are sometimes thought of as or, or called nano courses. So a traditional course uh, is a semester long, it lasts 14 weeks, and it has a certain number of classes in that time, and that's the unit of instruction. When you are online, you're not constrained in that way. You can have a course that lasts five weeks and covers a coherent amount of material that fits together as what are sometimes called nano courses. And I think, you know, during the pandemic, there was a lot more experimentation with things like that. Before the pandemic, there was a lot of interest in MOOCs, in, in massive open online courses and, and things like that. And then you had companies like Coursera stepping up and trying to develop for-profit models in that area. There's a lot of innovation, a lot of creativity. I don't think there were some people who were saying, ah, this is the next big disruption and universities are going to disappear. I, I don't think that's going to happen because there are many things that come from being an in-person community that are hard to replicate. On the other hand, there are some types of, of, of teaching that can be done better online, or at least as well, uh, or maybe can be done... 90% uh, as well, but much less expensively. And all of those uh, create uh, important opportunities that I hope will continue uh, into the future. And what are your thoughts on technical skills? Do you see universities getting, or academia getting closer to business? Uh, do we see greater integration between academia and business or the application of that skill set or that knowledge in, 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 in the actual workplace? Well, it's a good question. I think um, in, in, in some areas you do, it's more likely to be at the level of master's education than undergraduate. You know, undergraduate education tends to be broad and exploratory and developing basic skills. Once uh, a young person knows what vertical they're really interested in, what industry, whether it's hospitality or, or travel, uh, AI or something like that, then it, that's the time to pursue a master's degree. And I think it's the best master's programs usually involve some integration with the uh, business community. Some, you know, there'll be a, a capstone project where the project is not just designed by the professor in their office. Uh, it's designed in partnership with a real company that has a real issue and might have uh, special proprietary data that they can can share with the student to work on um, so that they will will be able then to make a real transition into the workforce um, at a high level 
Um, so I think I think we're going to see a lot of that. I think of it from the lens of, and Bryce and I have both worked in advertising. We continue to work in this industry, and and a lot of times the the graduates, the young people that we hire, we end up retraining them so that they're um, productive within the context of the business world. Do you think there's things that the business community could do to to help accelerate that learning? I mean, obviously, a lot of companies, um, you know, they're very focused on what they do, what they manufacture, what they produce, but they may not necessarily have very rigorous kind of onboarding of of young talent. How can the business community help academia? Well, I think, um, you know, it really does depend on the company, depend on the field, what particular knowledge and skills are needed. I, I, I do think it is important for any business when they bring new talent on board to expect that the the new talent will need to learn, you know, to keep learning, uh, you know, during their first year. There's a lot of company-specific knowledge that uh, is critical for success. And uh, that can never be acquired in a university. It doesn't make sense for the university to be developing company-specific knowledge and skills. Even when, when students go to business schools, they do lots of case studies of different companies. They may happen to end up working for one of those companies. That's lucky. But that's not part of the design. And any institution of scale, whether it's a media company or a university, needs to be thoughtful about how to ensure that when people arrive, they're not just thrown into the deep end of the pool. They are helped to acquire the knowledge and the skills that they need to succeed. One of the things that I often hear from Chinese parents uh, who are looking to, as an option to send their kids abroad is the exorbitant cost, especially in the United States, for international uh, tuition. It's very, very expensive. Do you see schools like NYU, which is probably one of the more expensive schools, uh, being able to be more accommodating in this aspect? Obviously, the, the price of schooling has certainly that when you and I went to college, it's far more far cheaper than than it is now do you see the prices going up further or do you see that the schools will evolve and and be more accommodating and that we might be similar to let's say canadian universities that have a, a larger enrollment and lower tuition well i'm completely with you i think the the level of tuition at American universities right now is is totally unacceptable. I think a number of factors have com- have combined, have blended to bring about the crazy acceleration in the cost of American higher education over the last 50 years. Um, I'll probably go on for an hour on it, but I'll, I'll, if you let me talk for five minutes, I, I can just sort of outline sort of what I think those factors are. You know, the top American universities are nonprofit. So they're not judged by how efficiently they operate to, to produce dividends for their shareholders. The, the mode of operation is they pass their costs on to their students, and this is all in an environment where they are judged by reputational rankings. And initially it was U.S. News that sort of drove a lot of this because their rankings actively reward universities mostly for having professors who do pathbreaking research, 
uh, for having professors who teach students in very small classes. And ironically, they reward schools for how much money they spend on their students. Well, in order to spend money on your students, you have to take the money from the students. And these rankings do not punish universities for being expensive. So in response to these incentives, students did several things. The average class size in a university today is much, much smaller than it was when we were in school. It's much, much smaller. The universities also reduced the number of classes that each professor has to teach over a typical five-year period. They might teach fewer classes each year. They might have more semesters off for research. Universities also spent a lot more money, uh, which they're rewarded for, on better food. Food today is a whole lot better than it was when we were students. Um, They spend a lot more money on student counseling services, things like that. So as a result, the student experience today is much, much nicer, much, much better than it was 50 years ago. The professors are teaching better. You can teach better in a small class. Uh, And the professors are also producing more research, more high-quality research that makes a difference uh, for the world. But I have some problems with all of this. And I I say this having been a part of the system that was making these changes in response to these incentives. So first, you know, the student experience is definitely better than it was, but it's not 10 times better. And students are not being given the option uh, of paying one-tenth as much in order to get the old-style, less good education. In order to, to participate, uh, you only have one, you know, there's only one flavor, and it is this super high-quality, super expensive flavor. The, the second problem is that, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in the importance of faculty research. I think it, it makes a big difference uh, for the world, for, for humanity, for the quality of life that we enjoy now and we will enjoy in the future. But that's a public good. It's, it's not a private benefit for the students at the school. This is being done to help the whole world. And that means the cost of faculty research should not be paid by the students. It shouldn't be covered by tuition. It should be covered by government grants or foundations or companies or businesses. But it shouldn't be pushed through in the form of, of student tuition, which is the way uh, it's been done. So, you know, I will say NYU has done a great job over the last five years of virtually freezing uh, tuitions and administrative fees. Five years ago, NYU's tuition and living expenses were at the very top. They've fallen now uh, a lot as tuition in other places has continued to go up. But I think that to fix the problem, it's not enough just to freeze tuitions where they are. I think we need to be able to cut tuition. And the only way to do that is to change what, what economists call the production function of higher education. We need to use technology in the way that we were talking about a few minutes ago to increase the number of student credit hours that a professor teaches over a five-year period. That can work well. You can have a, a, a teacher teaching 500 students, 1,000 students, 5,000 students using technology in these introductory courses that students take during freshman and sophomore year. 
that are primarily about acquiring knowledge rather than developing skills. And then during junior and senior years, they can take the, the small, more personalized classes like the ones that we mostly offer today. If a university were really to commit to that model, it would change the production function and it could then reduce uh, dramatically tuition costs from what they are right now. Now, it would take time because faculty have long-term contracts and so it's not as though by, by changing the production function you can lay off a lot of faculty and therefore reduce the costs. Um, it, but it would happen slowly over time and it, it would be, I think, uh, a benefit to society. I was going to ask this question that all three of us will be in agreement that despite the pandemic and the lockdowns and the quarantines and now 24-hour turnaround PCR tests required to get into public buildings, that it's still worth foreign parents to send their kids to China to study. Do you agree? And why? Uh, for the reasons that you say. I mean, the pandemic has, has obviously made movement across borders much more difficult today. It's much more expensive uh, in, in money and in time. And that is compounded by the fact that daily life is more complex with things like testing and all those other things. So it does make it harder to do the sorts of things that define uh, a university. And we would be very happy uh, to get back to the kind of normalcy where the world is once again flatter than it is today. But at the same time, I think that we have become uh, much more aware of the importance of resiliency as a human quality uh, during these times. I think uh, we as uh, teachers and our students all now see that life is not a simple straight line. There are bumps in the road and in order to have a happy life, you're gonna need to be able uh, to, to move through them uh, and adapt and pivot and do the things that, that the world requires of us. And so I think um, it's actually a good thing that as universities, we're thinking more about the importance uh, of those particular features. Now, as a parent wondering, well, gee, should I send my kid to China to study uh, in, in these times? Absolutely. Now more than ever, because uh, in a world where uh, things are not so simple and smooth, having had firsthand experience, firsthand knowledge of a place gives you a huge leg up over all of your peers who might just know about the world uh, through uh, the newspapers or social media. Um, if you actually have the kind of hands-on experience that you can get by studying abroad, uh, you really do have a critical differentiating advantage. Are we ready for the A-B test? We're absolutely ready for the A-B test. This is the best part of the show. Anyway, I'm just going to jump into it. Uh, Shanghai or Shenzhen? Shenzhen has unmatched youthful energy, entrepreneurial spirit, and innovation ecosystem. Shanghai has unmatched sophistication, culture, international relationships. 
Depends on which one you want. I love them both. University of Michigan or Cornell? So you're asking me which child I love the most. These are the two incredibly special places in my heart. They have defined who I am. William Rehnquist or John Roberts? So I would like the option to trade four members of the current court for two more Rehnquists and two more Robertses. Greenwich Village or the former French concession? Uh, two spectacular neighborhoods. I give the former French concession a slight edge on point because of the trees. The Yankees or the Tigers? Go get them, Tigers. In person or online? Thank you for an easy one. In person, in person, in person. Uh, Katz Deli or Ding Tai Fung? Well, uh, look, a pastrami sandwich from Katz's is, is one of civilization's highest achievements. Well, thanks again, Jeff, for being on the show. It was really fascinating, and we really enjoy uh, your comments and questions. And best of luck uh, for the school year. And we look forward to meeting you at the new Tiantan campus when you open up. Fantastic. Thanks for having me, Bryce and Ali. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on today's episode. Join us in two weeks for another exciting show. And to all our listeners, until then, have a great day.